one does not simply cry plan tears is something I just <laughs> <laughs> um I hate that so much <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on The Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. And I'm Ashani. This is episode 23, One Does Not Simply, FaceTime Mordor. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkien verse ahead. With that said, let's get into it. Okay, welcome back everybody to One Does Not Simply. I just wanted to start today by saying that uh, it's been mentioned, and I think rightfully so, by some people online that if T.S. Eliot had lived another hundred years to see his poem about the naming of cats turn into the musical Cats, uh, he would have maybe died of shock or people have speculated about what would happen. And I think it's it's also fair to ask the same question about what if Tolkien had lived another hundred years to see the Palantir that he conceptualizes <laughs> in this chapter, forming the basis of a big data company that sells its services to border security. Wait, I want to. Yeah, I want to linger on that for a second because yeah. I just have a question. Yeah. So, the Palantir, as we know, their powers are basically to FaceTime other people <laughs> in in Middle Earth. Right. Yeah. Uh, but. What the company Palantir does, like, really has nothing to do with that. They're like a big data analytics company. I'm a little confused at why they took they this name. They tell you information about other people, right? The pal- the Palantir is all about gathering information. I suppose. And, it just strikes yeah, me as weird that we have, like, but... so much communication technology, and yet this company is not making also, any of it. Also... Oh God, we're so I'm so sorry, Wanda. We've already derailed this for you. But <laughs> data analytics, right, is like seeing things, right? You want to see patterns, you want to see trends. The the Palantir is a seeing stone. All right, that's so, a stretch. <laughs> I don't Literally. think it is. I I I agree. I think that um, just to back up a second, what we learn in chapter eleven is that. There was a time before this um, this age in Middle Earth when the realms of men and elves were they knew a lot about each other, right? Because they had these these sorry, is it seven or nine? I'm bad at the lore. Seven. But they had seven. these right. Okay, so they have these seven seeing stones, and they're they're located throughout Middle Earth, and they use them to communicate with each other. And because of this, they have like they're my impression is that Middle Earth was kind of like more of a place, like it was more of a connected place with some kind of hierarchy to it, right? And some kind of um, at least theoretical order. And now we can see like in this time with just a couple Palantir left uh, owned by Sauron and Saruman respectively that we know of, we're we're now in this version of Middle Earth where nobody knows fucking anything about each other. And half the time when people meet, they're like, I thought that you were made up. I thought that you were like the equivalent of a troll. Um, and I guess I think to, in that sense, to the degree that like, like kind of like you were saying, Ashani, that, that data is what forms the foundation of cohesion in our society. The, that is the kind of knowledge and intelligence that, uh, that a big data company is providing, right? That's the kind of service that a big data company is providing. 
And data is also a way to predict future trends, right? Future patterns. And I think we do get an indication in chapter, I think it's chapter 11, where Gandalf, as he's explaining the history of these stones, talks about the fact that on its own, the Orthanc stone is not as powerful, but Saruman may still have been using it to sort of catch glimpses. Um, we know that it's not just a communication tool, or at least it's not just a verbal communication tool, right? There is some indication that, especially if you're gifted in magic or if you're gifted in other things, that you might be able to use it a little bit like Galadriel's mirror. You might be able to see the future a bit. You can certainly push through other things than just words, right? Because Sauron hurts Pippin through the stone, right? He exerts his will on him through the stone. So it's In like, the way I, that big data hurts you. <laughs> I mean, look, I have personally been attacked by big data. So, well, I mean, all these about targeted company, Facebook ads. Look, we're well, talking about a company that really realistically sells your data. So they are hurting yeah. you. Um, a company calling itself Palantir and then becoming like extremely fucked up if that was not its direction from the very beginning, mirrors what the actual Palantir were in every sense of the word. Really, we should have known because one of their products is literally called Palantir Gotham, which is like... <laughs> oh, lol. <laughs> the single most, I am a supervillain making my supervillain products for my supervillain lair. Oh my like, god, oh my god. That they were telling us the whole time what they were yeah. going to do with our data. That is so funny because, like, I think that that's. I, I mean, I, I was actually just reading this article um, about venture capitalists in San Francisco trying to get rid of the progressive district attorney there um, because they claim that his his policies of like not incarcerating tons of poor people have turned the city into Gotham. Um, and it's like, but you, <laughs> you, you're the ones that were waiting for this. You're trying to create Gotham. You just want to be Batman. <laughs> Anyway, this is a long diversion from, I guess I should have given the summary of what happens in the chapters. <laughs> yeah, maybe tell no, us no. about these yeah. chapters. Tell us about the chapters. Yeah, so they confront Saruman, right? They're, they're, uh, Gandalf and etc. have arrived at Isengard. And I guess what we can call like the, the senior strategy team uh, <laughs> in in the company at this point, which is everybody except for Merry and Pippin and all of the, the um, just the rank and file in the Rohan army. Everybody else goes up and hangs out with Sauron for, or Saruman for a while and tries to get him to uh, concede defeat quietly or come come quietly. Saruman does not. Eventually, he flees back into Orthanc, and then Wormtongue pulls kind of a fast one and he checks down the the Palantir that Saruman has been hoarding in his tower, narrowly misses Gandalf's head, and it it falls right almost basically into Pippin's lap. And then in chapter 11, Pippin has a bad experience uh, FaceTiming with Mordor with the, with the Palantir. And then uh, and Gandalf has to take Pippin off to Minas Tirith and everybody else has to flee. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot to talk about here. Where should we start? Where do you guys want to start? I kind of want to ask some, like, super basic questions about strategy before we get too deep into anything because I kind of didn't yeah. understand some of the uh, 
some of the choices, I guess, strategically that were made here. Why? Okay, let's start with why did they basically go to have a chat with Saruman? This is a wizard who they've decided is evil, who has already sent his armies to attack Rohan, who the Ents have, like, had to tear Isengard to destruction. And here they are basically being like, "Mm, let's go have a friendly chat with Saruman. Like, this doesn't seem like the way that war works to me. Um, It feels like at the very least you would try to capture and perhaps imprison Saruman, and at at most you would maybe try to kill him. Um, like, it seems bizarre to me that they would leave this very dangerous wizard just to his own devices in Orthanc. I think you have to look at who they is, though. You're saying, like, they feel like Saruman, they've made the decision that Saruman's evil and they go up mm-hmm. to approach him. But the reality is that it's not all of them, right? It's Gandalf who says, no, I want to try and talk to him. And the others are like, we'll tag along. Like, right. Theoden says, okay, well, I am also owed a, a part in this conversation and I'm old and I give no fucks, so I'll come with you and I'll bring Aomer. And Gandalf says, and I'll bring Aragorn to come with me as my second. But it's really Gandalf who initiates it. And Gandalf hasn't decided that Saruman is irredeemably evil. He says as much. He says, like, I really hope that he would have changed his mind. I thought for a moment I was going to sway him. Like, he had the chance to make something better of himself. He could have been a really big help to us if he had been a little less corrupted or a little bit more willing to be flexible and admit he was wrong he could have been super helpful to have on our side so right. it was worth a try yeah, yeah. It's gandalf's big tent strategy the the biggest um. possible tent includes saruman <laughs> who has just, just levied an assault on helm's deep gandalf's i guess like, like maybe <laughs> it, it makes sense maybe from gandalf's perspective because he has this kind of he is First of all, extremely powerful himself at this point, so maybe he doesn't feel like Saruman's as much of a threat. And also, he like they have a history together, right? It makes sense that he yeah. wants to give him the benefit of the doubt. But like, what about everybody else? Like, what, Theoden is just chilling here when this dude has sent orc armies to attack all of his people. I it doesn't really make sense to me that he would just quietly be like, Saruman, I'm owed an apology. <laughs> well, that's not necessarily true. I mean, at the end, like. Gandalf Gandalf basically tries the nice way first. He mm-hmm. says, like, okay, Saruman, like, won't you come out and like you're gonna have to like you're gonna have to give me your staff as collateral and then if you earn it back, I will give it back to you. Saruman does not take that deal. And then Gandalf says, Okay, your staff is broken. I'm just I'm just gonna do that. So so he breaks Saruman's staff, um, which may or may not actually have a substantial effect on how powerful Saruman is. He strips Saruman of all his like wizardly titles. And then he tells Treebeard, you're going to have to dam up the Aizen again and flood Isengard so that Saruman can't get out. Um, Treebeard does a bad job. Uh, yeah, so, I guess, maybe, uh, I'm, maybe I'm looking at this with like too much hindsight, but you know, the same way we felt about Wormtongue, where it was like, why did you let this guy go? Knowing what Saruman is about to do, you're just like, why, why did you let this guy go? And I understand that they left the Ents to imprison him, but like you said... They didn't do a very good job. <laughs> what he says is, like, I have no desire for mastery. 
The first time I read that, I was kind of like, oh, this sucks. Like, you're just kind of like, you're leaving him there. You know that he's going to, he, like, he, Saruman is in a terrible, precarious position. Sauron is coming for him. And he's obviously going to try and get out by any means necessary. But I think that what Gandalf is really trying to say is like, yeah, like maybe something bad will come of this, but my desire is not to be the kind of authority that uses their power to ensure against every possible negative action. And I think that that is really valid. Like I, I, um, there's a, there's a bunch of dichotomies set up in this chapter between like the kind of wizard that Saruman is and the kind of wizard that Gandalf is. And I think that Gandalf saying like, not so much like I forgive you, but I'm going to take a bunch of precautions and then more or less like let fate deal with the rest. I think it it kind of, I like it. Yeah. I think it kind of parallels to like how they behave towards the ring itself. Right. Like Mm -hmm. Saruman is actively seeking out the ring for its power while Gandalf actively refuses it because he's, he doesn't want to know what he would become. Yeah. And from a pragmatic standpoint, I think you also have to just look at it's not worth it. Like Saruman has been at least partially depowered by the breaking of his staff. He has been isolated. His armies are gone. So he's now just a single sort of entity um, working on his own without masses of soldiers to command. And we already know that Orthanc is a really hard place to break into like the ants can't destroy it and they're sitting there like toppling walls like it's nobody's you know like it's super easy for them to break down regular stone but they can't break or think and so if you think about like the investment in personnel that it would take to set up a siege and like try and break into this tower for one guy yes he's powerful but like he's stuck they they're pretty sure like hey he's stuck it doesn't make sense. They've got their own civilians to take care of. They have other armies that they suspect are on the move. Like, would have been nice to get like the showdown between Ants and Nazgul that happens when the Nazgul like shortly afterwards show up at Isengard, which we know happens <laughs> because the Nazgul, like Gandalf and company, see the Nazgul on their way there as they get out of Dodge. Maybe yeah. an possible explanation for how Saruman escapes too. Because the Nazgul aren't going to help Saruman escape, I don't think. That seems No, no, more like distract improbable. the <laughs> But if they were a distraction, I could right. see that being right. like... But to your point about Wormtongue, too, like, I think there's a difference between having somebody in your possession and letting them go, which I totally agree, like, maybe not the greatest move, um, versus, like, somebody is in a tower with that's not impregnable. Um, yeah, and I, I don't think they necessarily, like, when they let Wormtongue go, I don't think they knew he was going to go back to Saruman, right? They may have had, like, a suspicion this might be where he goes, but it also, very, he very easily could have, like, run away somewhere else and hidden for the rest of his life. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, like, Wormtongue is a little more sort of, fleshed out as a person with his own wants um saruman is way more interesting to me here than he was when we met him in gandalf's earlier story and i'm curious if that was the case for you too as well if you thought he was sort of yeah much more interesting than he is in the movies where he's just kind of a bad a bad dude 
How dare yeah. you, Christopher Lee? I mean, no, 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 no. We are not men. saying that Christopher Lee did a bad job with the performance because the performance is great. You really could not have chosen a better actor for like, for especially just given the way that that Tolkien describes Saruman's voice. I wish I had the the paragraph actually handy, but he describes Saruman's voice in this paragraph where it's just like, wow, you're just describing Christopher Lee's voice. Mm-hmm. So also, the physical description was super on point too, like the yeah. high forehead and the. The yeah. long face and everything. Right. You almost wonder if Tolkien like was part of some weird team creating Christopher Lee in a lab. <laughs> Who knows? Um, they were like, we're going to try We're going to try and ensure the our, uh, the wealth of our descendants by making sure all the actors are on hand to play uh, the characters we've created. Yeah. Um, side note, if you've never seen The Man with the Golden Gun, uh, Christopher Lee is A plus work in it and also a kind of a zaddy. Um, I don't know if you've seen this movie, but... <laughs> Wow. I was kind of surprised by my own attraction to Christopher Lee. <laughs> now, I will say, it's interesting that you were like, ah, oh, it's like Christopher, or like Tolkien was describing Christopher Lee. Now, obviously, Tolkien could not have been describing Christopher Lee because the ages met up don't, or don't match up, but Christopher Lee did meet Tolkien. Like, yeah. they actually had overlap in their lifespans because Christopher Lee was old as well when he made the Lord of the Rings movies. <laughs> How did they meet? I have no idea. I mean, I think Christopher Lee was actually a huge Lord of the Rings fan. He originally wanted to play Gandalf, and he, like, wanted really badly to be in these movies. Do you think that Tolkien got a special premiere invite to The Man with the Golden Gun? (laughs) I imagine they met much later than that. (laughs) I don't know. I'm unclear on the timelines here. Okay, hilariously, Christopher Lee apparently met Tolkien in a pub in oxford just by chance incredible wow wait just just it was just a chance encounter yeah it was just a chance encounter like a man walks into a pub and one of those men is christopher lee and in the pub is tolkien um can you i i feel like the phrase my dear boy must have been uttered upwards of 10 (laughs) times (laughs) almost definitely yeah, he it says. Does by the way, I, oh, go sorry ahead. Sorry to interrupt, Ashani, but I do want to get this in there for the for the schlubs out there that aren't actually reading the books. Um, the the passage says, um, uh, Saruman's voice was quote unquote low and melodious. It's very sound and enchantment. Those who listened unwarily to the voice could seldom report the words that they heard, and if they did, they wondered, for little power remained in them. Mostly, they remembered that only that it was a delight to hear the vo- the voice speaking. All that it said seemed wise and reasonable, and desire awoke in them by swift agreement to seem wise themselves. I think that's that Christopher Lee was a really great um, match yeah. for that description. But that's the thing, right? It's like Christopher Lee is was genuinely a super talented dude, mm-hmm. right? Like he was a great actor. He was clearly multi talented across a realm of different sort of fields, and he could have done more like I think if he had gotten more in terms of what Saruman was capable of if he had gotten more of like some of these really great like monologues or more of this back and forth I think he could have done something really cool with it and I'm a little sad we didn't get that mostly because I'm like ah, I would have loved to hear Christopher Lee do this right I would have loved to hear him say some of this stuff so I don't know if we've actually like gone into the We've actually talked about what it is that Saruman does in this chapter, but... Yeah. I think there were sort of two pieces that I really liked. One was that 
he is clearly way more dangerous than we got the impression of back when he gets introduced in Fellowship. Because at that point, there's nothing about his sort of persuasiveness. There's nothing about the impact of his voice. And maybe that's because it's Gandalf telling the story and it doesn't, I don't know, maybe it doesn't work on Gandalf because he's also a a wizard, right? And that's kind of, it seems there are some hints that that might be the case. It doesn't seem to impact Gandalf at all when Saruman uses his special voice, Um, right? But there's no sort of sense of, oh, this person isn't just powerful because they're head of an army. This person is powerful on their own. There's a reason they have an army. There's a reason they can influence people this way. And that was super interesting. The other thing I thought was really interesting was that when it's clear that he is not going to, you see him work so hard. Right. Like you see mm. him try and then get staggered a little bit and recollect himself and try again and like turn from Theoden to Gandalf and like really working to get somebody, anybody on his side because he recognizes the fact that he's in deep shit and he doesn't say it ever. Right. He doesn't once acknowledge like you guys won, but you can see it in his actions in the same way you can Mm. see like when he talks about um you know oh Gandalf you're just trying to like get all of the wizard staffs and when you have the staffs and the rings like and you are sort of master over all then you're gonna expect me to like come crawling back to you and in that you're like this is what you wanted right you can't imagine that anyone else in your position could want something other than this. And that's but actually, this is what yeah. you wanted. That's part of what I think makes his like the like we get this explanation that like for for sort of spiritual or supernatural reasons, like Saruman doesn't have the power that he once did. But actually just from a rhetorical perspective, that is such a bad argument, right? Like being like, Oh, you know, Gandalf sucks because he's just trying to do the thing that I just tried to do. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think one of the really interesting things about Saruman in these chapters to me was that it wasn't very clear to me when he was using his power. Like, obviously, Mm. the chapter is called The Voice of Saruman. We know he has this magical voice. And we got that description of it, right, where it's clear that something is in this voice that is more than just somebody speaking. But what I got the sense of is actually the things that he was saying were very clever and designed to manipulate the particular people he was talking to. Um, I think, Wanda, you said this in your notes, but he was basically an expert gaslighter, right? <laughs> like, yeah, he basically, definitely, a, definitely a concept that existed prior to YouTube. <laughs> right. I mean, he was basically trying to convince first Theoden that, you know, everything was great, that he was just trying to help Rohan. Like, why would you think that I was trying to attack you? This We were going to be friends with what the hell, man? And then he went to Gandalf and he's like, hey, uh, you're actually the evil one because you want all the power. And like, you know, mm. this manipulation, I thought was actually the power of, of the words he was saying, I thought weren't was not restricted to just his voice saying them. It was also in the meaning behind what he was saying. And it kind of led me to think, like, how do, how do we see the magic of wizards, like, manifest in this world? And this is the point where I started to get, like, a little frustrated that there was actually, like, very little effort put into establishing what the rules are and, like, who has magic and what the magic system is. Because when we see Gandalf use use his power, it's always in, like, he's summoning a storm or he's breaking the staff, and it's very physically manifested, right? He uses his staff to, you know, 
push out a beam of light or something that it physically pushes the enemy away. And then we see this yeah. subtler version of Saruman's magic where, you know, he is actually using manipulation as his power. And he mm-hmm. we don't see him necessarily manifest a physical power of magic of like, you know, trying to attack any of these people in the room. So I I don't know. Yeah. I kind of. That is so interesting, actually. Yeah. I thought it was very interesting that, like, Tolkien in making. I I don't know that this was a deliberate decision, but he has essentially chosen not to define a magic system of this world at all, just to have one. Um, And we've seen many different types of magic at this point. But these two are of the same race, right? They're both wizards. And to, for them to have such a different manifestation of powers, I thought was very interesting. And also kind of it was more. Um, where am I? Where, where, where am I going with this? Uh, it was almost like a like in this situation where, you know, we get a few mentions from Gimli and others that like Gandalf and Saruman are like very like, but also very different. And this was another way that that dichotomy existed. What, something that I thought was interesting, like on that same theme, is that um, we've been talking for a couple chapters about how insufferable Gandalf is in some of the <laughs> ways in which he's not just he's not just like a stubborn old coot, but he's also really obscure. And mm-hmm. he'll just go off. He just like he just pieces out when they're going to Helmsteep, and he's like, "I've got to go do some stuff." And he does not explain. And he gets to Isengard, and he meets Merry and Pippin, and he probably should explain what he's doing. He does not explain. And it's interesting that now in this chapter, one of the ways in which Saruman tries to seduce Theoden into allying with him is by just being really nice. Like he's like compared to Gandalf, he comes off really good. Like he 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 sounds kind of like okay, I'm the I'm the friend that's going to be uh, like a a good. Um, I'm going to give you all the information, you know. Um, I'm not going to talk down to you. I'm not going to hide what I'm doing from you. That's like mm-hmm. that. At least that's the impression that I got. And yeah, we're going to work together, right? We're going to work together as Rohan and Isengard to make this happen. You never get that sense from Gandalf. You know, I wonder in a sense, hearing you talk about that, if the reason that Gandalf doesn't explain himself is because he's actually not trying to convince anyone, right? He is so kind of clear-headed about what he needs to do and what the right thing to do is, that he has actually no interest in bringing others along on that journey because for him, that's like, irrelevant he doesn't care if Theoden is under his sway and he doesn't care if everybody's agreeing with him he just knows what the quote-unquote right thing to do is well and I would link those two honestly because I think I want to take our characterization of Gandalf a little bit farther into almost overcorrecting that I think Hmm. there's a sense uh in which yes Gandalf knows the right thing to do But we can't say that he's acting in isolation. Like, he's not just sitting there going, oh, I don't give a shit what anybody else is doing. He wants other people to take action. He wants other people to get involved. But I think for Gandalf, his big fear is that he is going to become somebody who orders, right? Somebody who shapes in a really active way what other people are doing. He's worried about 
I mean, we see it, right, when he talks about the temptation of the ring, that he could be somebody who's like, I'm just going to come in and, like, tell people what to do and fix things. And he doesn't want to do that. And I think he maybe overcorrects a little bit in not giving information and not trying to make decisions for other people, um, you know, letting them come to their own conclusions sometimes. But... He doesn't do it with the hobbits, right? And that's why he Mm. comes off, I think, as more likable in these chapters is because we mostly see him interacting with Merry and Pippin. And I wonder if that has to do with, like, the hobbits are small in the grand scheme of things. They aren't kings. They aren't lords. They aren't warriors. They aren't in positions of power where if Gandalf had influence over them, they could bring a whole land to ruin. So the hobbits are in some ways safe. And the hobbits are also like people who know who they are, right? Maybe more than anybody else, the hobbits are like, but we know who we are and where we're going and what we're, what matters to us. And so they can't mm. be sort of told what to do. And if they are told what to do, they're like, yeah, but we're going to do what we want anyways. Um I also think that the Hobbits, one of the reasons that, like, they're the most enjoyable to read from the perspective of is because they actually, like, ask the questions that the reader Mm -hmm. is having, right? Well, hang on, hang on, hang on a second, because I really do want to get into that. But I think that I just wanted to linger for a second, if it's okay with you guys, on on just, like, what Ashani was saying about the Hobbits as... So so you're saying that the Hobbits are, are... Do you think that there's something that's intrinsic about the hobbits that makes them small? Or do you think that Gandalf himself actually renders them small? There's this like wonderful line in the chapter where it's like Merry and Pippin were standing at the base of Orthanc feeling very, both unimportant and unsafe. Mm -hmm. And the question I had was like, I mean, why they just basically helped Treebeard bring down all of Isengard. Why aren't they not up there? I think it's an internal thing, right? I think it's a... And I don't want to say, like, inherent to hobbits as a people, necessarily, but it is this internal sense of, like, humility, almost, Mm -hmm. right? Of not wanting to reach beyond where you're comfortable or not Mm -hmm. wanting to sort of... Just because you're on this quest, it doesn't change the fact that, like, the... The scope of their world is big, right? But the places that they care to influence, the places, the power that they want is small. The hobbits don't come into this going, I want to be king of Gondor. Like the hobbits just say, we want to help our friends, right? And then we want to go home safely. Mm-hmm. And Mary the and hobbits Pippin... are in this for Frodo and Sam. And they don't get deliberately left out of the Orthanc party, right? Everybody else invites themselves along. Like, Gimli's mm-hmm. like, I want to go. <laughs> and, and Mary and Pippin are the ones that, like you said, Ashani, like, internally, they're like, mm, I don't know if this is for me, but also I don't know why I'm the only one left out now. <laughs> right. Um, and also, I think, kind of going back to the dichotomy between Gandalf and Saruman, like, going back to the way they display their powers, right? I think one of the things that Gandalf does in order to convince people that he is the person to follow are these big spectacles of magic. Yeah. And I don't know that 
they have the same impact on everyone as they have on the hobbits, right? I think he goes mm. to the Shire and he does these fireworks and he, you know, just these little displays of like, look at my power. And the hobbits, right. like children, are just absolutely enthralled by this. But men of the world who have seen all these things like Theoden and Aragorn are maybe not so swayed by that kind of spectacle as they are by a more subtle manipulation. Mm-hmm. Well, and when I'm saying the hobbits are small, like I don't think they are... I don't want to sort of infantilize them. I think it's they don't have any sense of self-importance, right? And that was the phrase I was grasping for and couldn't find. But they're not at all self-important. And they, in sort of responding to spectacle, I mean, yeah, I think they enjoy that. But I also think they don't take Gandalf too seriously. Like, they don't just go, oh, but Gandalf... You know, everything he tells us we should accept without question. Like, Pippin is pestering him for several pages about, like, well, okay, can you tell me why? And then, like, I think in early on in the chapter, Mary is like, hey, I want to know, like, what are we doing? And Gandalf Mm -hmm. gives a long and rambling answer, and Mary is like, that's great, but what are we doing? Mm -hmm. Um, Which... Like, yeah, they're they're impressed by him, but they're not overawed at all. I want to ask another question that maybe you have an answer to that I don't, um, because maybe I didn't read this closely enough. But why does Gandalf take Pippin to Minas Tirith? Did you guys think it was odd at all that he didn't take Aragorn to Minas Tirith? I, <laughs> I think it was a question of of efficiency at that point, right? Like, you're trying to get Pippin away from the Palantir. You're trying to... Yeah, but to... Aragorn has the Palantir, so presumably taking the Palantir away could have happened by either one. But also, Shadowfax is far and away the fastest means of transportation they have, and I don't think two grown men on a horse, even if that horse is very magical, like... <laughs> It's going to slow it down. I feel like we have, like, we end up in so many conversations like this where, like, two of us are trying to figure out, like, the actual, like, brass tacks, like, why something happens in the books. And the third person is just going, ah, like, it's this, like, it's just, it's just the Lord of the Rings, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I'm not bringing this up as, like, a plot hole in that way. I'm just wondering if there's genuinely, like, a Aragorn isn't ready for this kind of motivation behind this decision mm-hmm. um well it's probably i mean yeah like if denethor in in gondor is really hostile to the heir of isildur coming to hang out then mm-hmm. probably not good that that aragorn be there also maybe there's a reason for aragorn to go with theoden to dunharrow right which is where yeah. all the other people in rohan are at right and i think we have gotten a sense that already that Denethor is a little hostile, right? Is that, I I think that happens in the books where like Gandalf goes to do research and he talks about like not being treated super well. Mm -hmm. Am I just imagining this? No, it's it's there. (laughs) That's ringing a bell. Yeah, when he originally Um, goes to figure out what the ring is. Right. That's what I thought, but I was like, am I just making this up Um, or imagining it from the movies? But so if he knows already that Denethor is a little aggressive or a little, like, on edge, then bringing Aragorn to Minas Tirith right on the eve of a battle when you ideally want unified leadership, probably not a good idea. Yeah, even yeah. Gandalf has some sense of tact. 
Yeah. Yeah. I guess I was just wondering, like, Aragorn eventually has to end up in Minas Tirith. And if you're going... I mean, does he, though? <laughs> if we're going to go there to protect them, taking a random hobbit along may not be the best manner to do that in. But I, I, I had one more realization about Aragorn while I was reading these chapters, which... I don't I don't want to beat this horse to death but um but I had this realization that like I think at this point we've seen most of the other characters in the story somehow earn the respect or trust of the people around them through their actions essentially um and in what we've seen from Aragorn instead is like a trust me because fate said so uh, because I am going to be the king of Gondor, therefore believe in me. And I think that's kind of the underlying like thing that we don't like about him because he doesn't really bother to prove himself in any way. Well, he proves himself in the sense that he he is always for the side of good. <laughs> I mean, isn't everyone I... <laughs> other than, like, a couple of people? So, right. So you're saying that, like, he, like, maybe we're okay with, like, Aragorn hanging out, but, like, he doesn't prove himself worthy of being the leader. Right. I, well, not I, even yeah. prove, like, I guess, like, he doesn't prove himself a worthy of being liked by me is really what yeah. I'm getting at. Yeah, and, and the books, like, uh, Shani, I think you put in your notes that the, the actual, like, Deuteragonist, which I had to look up, but I guess it means like kind of second to the protagonist. The actual Deuteragonist in the story is probably Merry or Pippin. You said Pippin. And, I said Pippin, yeah. And I think that's right. Like, I, I think that Aragorn definitely is not. Like, they make him out to be that way in the movies. And you really try to kind of do that to him in your mind when you're reading the books if you've watched the movies and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, Aragorn, I'm like all about this guy. But in fact, it's like you're you're meant to read this as a story of four hobbits right and you're reading mm-hmm. it through their eyes and aragorn is sort of kind of like gandalf this this uh mystical figure or that represents if if nothing else like just the idea that like good is worth following because it's good um like it's interesting it's, also that the hobbits yeah. get so excited whenever aragorn like reappears as strider right yeah i love that too it's yeah. like oh here's like it, it's like um it's like when like a celebrity shows up in a role that you liked them in before. Yeah. Sorry, I think I cut off what you were Yeah, saying I was gonna before. say I wanna go back to what you were saying, Wanda, about like you follow good because it is good. Something I picked up on in these chapters, you guys know that like in, in chapter ten, I think it's Aragorn that says like sometimes hatred does itself in. Mm-hmm. As in like these are these are mm-hmm. two like really hateful people stuck up in the tower together. And all you have to do to guarantee that they're going to fall to ruin is just leave them in there together. And then later in um, chapter 11, Theoden says, oft evil will doth evil mar. And which is just basically another way of saying the exact same thing. And like, maybe this is like leaping way too far ahead or taking too many liberties with, with that, with those two statements. But I think that what Tolkien is generally trying to get at here is if you are more or less good-hearted, it's okay to not know everything. And it's okay to be dumb, like the way that Pippin is dumb when he tries to look into the Seeing Stone. Because you're just, it's just more likely if you, like, if you're driven by compassion, you're driven by love, you're just more likely to end up having things go your way. Whereas if you are evil and selfish, 
you're just you can be really smart like Saruman is, but you're just it's just going to you're just going to drive yourself into the ground. Like it's just kind of how it goes. And mm-hmm. if that's frustratingly simple or obscure, I would just point to the fact that like once again Tolkien was Roman Catholic and this is like for me as someone that grew up Christian this is very 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 familiar philosophy um and mm-hmm. one that even though I'm not Christian anymore I still I still quite like I I really like that too actually I mean I don't know that it necessarily manifests as true in what I've seen in the world but <laughs> but I like the idea yeah thanks for listening to one does not simply this episode was edited by Wanda you can find us on Twitter at ODNSPod and Tumblr at One Does Not Simply Pod. Special thanks to Andrew, Sneha, and all our listeners for joining us on this journey. If you like what you hear, give us a rating or review on whatever platform you listen to.